Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Bitsy Tinboom, Promise of God by Mike Evans with permission of Time Worthy Books. And we are on chapter five. As spring neared, Marguerite and I rode the trolley to the hospital just as we had throughout my stay. This time, however, Dr. Trump was waiting for me when I arrived on the ward. Normally I saw only the nurses, but he was there himself and led me to an examination room. With a nurse standing nearby, he examined me as thoroughly as the first day I arrived. When he finished, he took a seat on a stool in the corner. From my place on the examining table, I glanced over at him and saw a faint smile on his face. Betsy, he said, folding his arms across his chest, we have learned much from you, and what we've learned has led to a dramatic improvement in your condition and in the condition of many others. I do feel better. I wasn't sure if I should respond, but I found myself compelled to say something. I'm not as tired as I was when I first came here, and I can do most of my daily routine without getting out of breath. Yes, he nodded. I'm sure you can. He crossed his legs and leaned back. I think we have learned all we can from you, and I think we have done all we can for you. His words struck me in an odd way arousing hope that I might be well and at the same time suggesting I might yet be doomed to the short life Dr. Brunel had suggested. I chose to be hopeful. Am I cured? There is no cure, he shook his head. But I do think you can manage your condition now. For how long? For as long as you wish. A smile spread over my face. I'm not going to die? No, he said with another shake of his head. You're not going to die. A grin turned up the corners of his mouth and pushed his cheeks higher, squeezing the corners of his eyes. How would you like to go home to your parents? I bolted to a sitting position on the examining table. I would like that very much, I exclaimed. Good. He stood as if to leave. I will send Dr. Brunel a telegram with instructions on how to continue your treatment. Then he reached into his pocket and took out a small bottle. This is a liver extract and the vitamin mixture you have been taking. He handed the bottle to me. When I telegraph Dr. Brunnell, I will give him the formula. He can continue making it for you. I held the bottle tightly in my grip and looked over at him. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. There was an awkward moment, as if he had more to say. But instead, he turned toward the door. Then, at the last possible moment, as he was about to disappear down the hall, he paused and looked back at me. You asked me once about children. Yes. He stepped back inside the doorway. It was cruel of me to speak to you so bluntly. His comment puzzled me, and I hardly knew what to make of it. So I asked the first question that came to my mind, a question I'd heard Papa ask many times before. Was it the truth? Dr. Trump had a quizzical look. Was what the truth? What you told me about children, was it the truth? Yes, he said slowly. What I told you was the truth. As long as you continue to take the extract formula, you can manage your daily life, even a vigorous one. But pregnancy would likely be too much for your body. Then why should you feel bad about telling me? Many young girls dream of having a family. His eyes darted away. I did not like taking that dream from you. But you gave me my life, I said, trying to relive the sense of guilt he obviously felt. No, God gave you that. He had a thin, tight smile. I'm just helping you make the most of it. 
With that, he turned away and disappeared down the hall. From the examination room, I hurried down to the hall to find Marguerite and tell her the news. We laughed and giggled all the way back to her house, but it was a bittersweet moment for both of us. Over the months I'd stayed with her and Garrett, she and I had grown much closer than mere cousins, and the thought that we might not see each other again left us both feeling sad. Still, this was the moment of my coming to Amsterdam, to get well and return home, and now that moment had arrived. For the remainder of the morning, we worked in my room, packing my clothes and other items into the trunk. After lunch, Garrett and a workman from his shop carried it down to the first floor. Then he sent a message to Papa and Mama telling them the news and arranged for a wagon to take us to the train station. In the middle of the afternoon, I said a tearful goodbye to Marguerite, climbed into the wagon with Garrett and the driver, and started to the station. Garrett purchased a ticket for me and deposited the trunk with the station clerk and then escorted me to the platform. We waited there in awkward silence, him with his hands folded behind his back, me with my eyes fixed on the tracks, scanning the horizon for any sign of the approaching train. Before long, a column of smoke appeared in the distance, rising from between the buildings. Then the locomotive emerged, rounding a curve in the track. It slowed to a crawl as it approached the station and took forever to reach the platform where we stood. But at last, it came to a stop with a door to the last car just a few feet away. Garrett slipped his arms around my shoulders for a hug, then gestured with his free hand towards the coach steps. Let us know when you get home, he said quietly. I agreed to send them a message and boarded the train. The conductor helped me to my seat and I settled into a place next to the window. Already my mind was preoccupied with the thoughts of home, but I glanced out the window for one last look at Amsterdam. Then I remembered Garrett and scanned the platform to catch his eye and give him a wave, but he was nowhere to be seen. A few minutes later a bell rang and the train began to move, and we rolled slowly away from the station. Before long, we were in the open countryside, and the train picked up speed. Houses and farms zipped past in a blur. The rail car rocked gently from side to side, in time with the clack of the wheels against the rails. Papa was waiting at the station when the train arrived. I saw him on the platform as we approached and hurried from my seat to stand at the door. The train seemed to take forever to stop moving, but as it did, I jumped to the platform and ran into Papa's arms. He squeezed me tightly, and I buried my face in the fabric of his jacket, filling my nostrils with the familiar scent of pipe tobacco and peppermint. We took a wagon from the station to carry us in the trunk. I chattered the whole way about Amsterdam, the hospital, Dr. Trump, and the thousands of other things I don't remember now. It seemed as though I'd been gone for years. I had much to say and felt compelled to say it all right then. When I paused to take a breath, Papa broke into the conversation. Listen, he said quietly, your mother isn't well today. She's in bed, so when we get there, you must be quiet. Yes, Papa, I replied, I will do my best. Perhaps it would be better if you greeted Noli and Corey outside on the street. I was puzzled by his request. On the street? Yes, he nodded. If you meet them out there, you girls can do your squealing and shouting before you get inside. That way it will be quieter for your mother. Oh, I replied with a grin, that's a good idea. I thought it was ingenious and gallant, but it would all go for naught. A few minutes later, the wagon turned into the corner onto our street, and a few blocks ahead, the Bayer came into sight. 
My heart skipped a beat at the sight of it. I was home at last. As a wagon came to stop outside the shop entrance, the door flung open and out came Noli and Corey, followed closely by Mama and Aunt Anna. So much for Papa's plan to keep things quiet. Before my foot hit the pavement, they grabbed me and hugged me. Noli squealed. Aunt Anna burst out laughing. Mama's face was pale, and I could see she didn't feel well. But even so, she wrapped both arms around me and squeezed me closely than I've ever been squeezed before. I wasn't sure she would ever let me go. But then William appeared. He looked a foot taller than the last time I'd seen him. And just when I thought Mama would give me a break from the hugging, William grabbed me and gave me a squeeze. Good to see you, he said. I looked up at him and sure that I saw tears in his eyes. Good to see you too, I replied. After a few minutes outside on the sidewalk, Mama turned toward the door. She opened it and gestured with her free hand. We all knew what that meant, and in a dutiful procession, Noli, Corey, and I started inside. Noli led the way past Mama and up the stairs, with Corey and me right behind. As we did so, Corey took my hand in hers and grabbed it tightly. I wanted to complain, but the moment I opened my mouth to speak, I remember the time she kept repeating the questions months earlier when I was packing to leave for Amsterdam. The tight squeeze now meant the same thing. She wanted to say something or do something that let me know she was glad to see me. Squeezing my hand tight enough to stop the blood flow was all she could think to do. So I took a deep breath, bore the pain in silence. Upstairs in the kitchen, Mama and Aunt Annie went to work slicing freshly baked cake and pouring cups of coffee for everyone. They rarely let a joyous occasion pass without baking something. My arrival was only the most recent excuse to send Noli to the store for a pound of sugar. We ate cake and drank coffee until it was all gone, and in between bites, I recounted as many of my experiences in Amsterdam as I could remember except for the part about whether I could bear children. That I kept inside in that secret place where I put my thoughts and prayers that were too personal to mention. The following day, Dr. Brunnell came to the Bayet to check on me. As before, he gave me a thorough examination. Aunt Anna stood watch while he did. Mama was too sick to get out of bed. I received a telegram from Dr. Trump about the liver extract. You have some of it still? Yes, he gave me a bottle before I left. Good. It will take a day or two to obtain all the ingredients and several hours to mix it properly. But once we get the hang of it, I can prepare it for you every month. Thank you for sending me to him. He smiled. You're quite welcome. You'll need to take the extract every day. The vitamins will help only if you continue to take the extract. I will. Even if you feel fine and think you don't need it any longer. Yes, sir, I'll take it. Otherwise, Dr. Brunnell continued, your body won't be able to use the vitamins. I understand. As long as you take it, you should live a normal life. Just then, Mama appeared in the doorway. I'm a little concerned about how active she should be. Moderate activity isn't a problem. Walking to school, the park, that sort of thing. But you should take precautions to avoid getting ill. Avoid crowds in the winter. Keep warm. Don't get wet and chilled. Usual precautions. Illness would be very stressful for your body. He looked back at Mama. How are you feeling today? Not so good right now. I was much better yesterday, but now I'm feeling quite faint. 
As I told you, this will take some time to pass. The following Monday, Vincent came home with William and Noli. We talked about friends and classmates and all the gossip I'd missed. When we were tired of that, he suggested we turn to the day's lessons in mathematics. Having been away for so long, I assumed I would have to repeat the year. Trying to catch up with the class now seemed futile. But schoolwork was always fun for me, and for almost two hours we worked problems from the textbook. All the time, my mind kept running back to the conversation I'd had with Dr. Trump about children and my inner need to tell Vincent. In a while, the afternoon light began to fade. Vincent gathered his books and prepared to leave. With a final goodbye to Mama and Aunt Anna, I led him downstairs to the street. As we reached the first floor, I turned to face him and was about to speak when he smiled at me and said, I've been reading about your condition, and where did you find something to read about it? My mother wa He caught himself as if he'd made a mistake, and for an instant his eyes darted away, and then he quickly recovered and continued. My mother is friends with a doctor on the other side of town. He has some medical books and journals that have articles about your condition. There's even an article in one of them about Dr. Trump's research. He's a rather famous doctor, you know. No, I said with a shake of my head, I didn't know that. But it was true. I really didn't know. But right then I didn't care. I needed to tell Vincent about my decision regarding babies and marriage. And at the same time, I wanted with all my heart to run and to sing and take a walk, anything except the thing I felt compelled to do. I didn't understand much that I read, he rambled on. But they all said that you should avoid getting sick. You can have a normal life if you continue to take the medicine Dr. Trump compounded and avoid the kinds of things that put too much of a strain on your body. At last, there was an opening in my conversation. Yes, well, about all that, I he cut me off before I could get started. It'll be dark before long, and I have ways to go to get home. I need to... He glanced nervously up the steps as if checking... It's just that, well, it's been a long time since I've seen you, and I don't know what you're thinking, but all at once he leaned over and kissed me on the cheek. I think it surprised him as much as it did me, and we stood there staring at each other, his cheeks looking as red as mine felt, neither of us knowing what to do next. After a moment, he smiled, and the sweetest voice, he said, I'm glad you're home. Then he opened the door and stepped outside and was gone. Because of Dr. Bernal's advice, Mama kept me home from school for the remainder of the year. She made arrangements with my teacher to supply homework, and they agreed that if my grades improved sufficient during the final months, I could advance with my class. To do that, I needed to catch up on the work I missed and spent most days seated at the dining room table working through our textbooks. Most days I did two lessons for each subject, I made good progress the first week, but what I missed were comments in class that helped to clarify the topics. William was a grade behind me, so he wasn't much help. I did the best I could, but after two or three weeks, my pace slowed. At the same time, I continued to wrestle with what to tell Vincent. By then, I was 15, and time seemed to be hurtling us through a future I wasn't sure we were ready to face. I wanted to tell him everything, but I was afraid he would think I was being too forward. We'd never even discussed whether we had a relationship, much less what our future might be like. If I said something to him now, it would only look like I was infatuated with him because he kissed me on the cheek. I was seated at the dining room table trying to complete a lesson in history. 
when Mama appeared at the doorway and rescued me from my thoughts. Want some coffee? Sure. Coffee with Mama meant time alone with her, seated at the kitchen table, where we often talked for hours. I could never pass up a chance for that, so I laid aside my textbook and followed after her. Instead of sitting in the kitchen, though she handed me a cup and said, Come on, let's go up on the roof. Harlem was an old city. People had lived there for centuries. As a result, it was crowded with buildings crammed together side by side, covering every inch of available space, squeezed so closely beside each other that there was no space for a lawn, and most people had to be satisfied with a few flowers and flower boxes that hung beneath the windows. But when Grandfather owned our house, he purchased the house behind us. It faced the opposite direction towards the next street over. The two structures stood back to back with a narrow alley in between. Later, he joined them together, filling in the alley. That part of the house was now the staircase, and it went all the way to the top where a door led onto the roof. Up there, above the buildings, there was plenty of sunshine, and that's where Mama kept her garden. Coffee cup in hand, I followed her up to the rooftop where we wound our way past pots of flowers and containers of vegetable plants, most of them just beginning to leaf out in the warm spring air. She took a seat on a wooden chair Papa made just for her. I sat beside her on one we had brought up from the kitchen. I haven't seen Vincent around. I don't think I've seen him since the day you returned. No, he hasn't been back around. Something happened between you two? You used to be good friends. We are good friends. Then why isn't he coming around? I took a sip of coffee, trying to think of a way to avoid telling her. Then I just gave up and told her about overhearing the nurses on the ward talking about me and my conversation with Dr. Trump about bearing children and talking to Marguerite. Hearing myself talk about it now, I wasn't so sure it was the right thing to do. And before I was through, I was wishing I'd never said anything. I sounded officious and like I was stuck on myself. From the faint smile on her face, Mama must have been thinking the same thing. When I finished telling her, she looked over at me in a way that only Mama could do and say, Aren't you being a little hasty? You are, after all, only 15. I'll be 16 before school ends next year. Lots of women have children by that age. I suppose they do, but that's not you. Marguerite said the same thing when I told her. A smile came to Mama's face. Marguerite was right. But if I can't have children, why marry at all? Having children is a wonderful blessing. But there are other ways of finding fulfillment in life. Yes, but a husband would want children, wouldn't he? Most would. But if he asked and kept asking, I would give in and try to give him what he wanted. And the result would be disastrous for everyone. Maybe. That's what Dr. Trump said. But he said it would be too difficult for your body. Isn't that what he said? Yes. But he was talking about something that wouldn't happen for another five years at least. He can't predict the future. What do you mean? I mean he's a doctor, not a prophet. He doesn't know what your future holds. I still think it's better to avoid the issue altogether and live my life as a single woman. We sat there for a while, both of us staring off into space, neither of us looking at each other, but I could tell she wasn't satisfied with my decision or my attitude. She wasn't interested in pushing me to marry. I understood that well enough. What she didn't like was the way my self-importance answer about the future closed the door on possibilities. That was something she wouldn't allow for herself and insisted that we avoid. The future belongs to God, she used to say. Better to leave the future in his hands. 
After a while, she pushed herself up on the chair and moved to one of the pots that sat nearby. She pinched off a leaf near the base of the plant and said without turning her face to me, I guess you better get back to your schoolwork. Yes, ma'am, I replied. I suppose I should. For the rest of the day and for six days each week throughout the remainder of the term, I focused my energy on completing the year's lessons, working sometimes until after supper. I completed the required assignments, and Mama administered the final examinations. We submitted them one week before the end of spring term and waited for a response. On the last day of class before summer, William brought home a note from our teacher telling me that I would be advanced with my class for the fall term. I was glad because that year was our final year of secondary education. But before all that, there was to be summer. Next week will be Chapter 6. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.